You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Broadway Gives Back Podcast. I'm your host, Jan Svensson. This podcast spotlights Broadway actors, shows, and organizations in their pursuit of social impact and philanthropy. Join us as some of the brightest lights on Broadway share their stories about their favorite charities and how they got involved, and the people and the causes who benefited from these philanthropic efforts. My guest this week, Victoria Bailey, has been the executive director of the Theater Development Fund since 2001. TDF is dedicated to bringing the performing arts to everyone by engaging and cultivating a broad and diverse audience and by eliminating the barriers to attendance. Tori envisions a world where the transformative experience of attending live theater is essential, relevant, accessible, and inspirational. Tori led the development of the new TKTS booth in Duffy Square, the expansion of its educational programs, and the introduction of the sensory-friendly Broadway performances. Tori is a professor of the School of Arts at Columbia University and a member of the board at the Times Square Alliance. And Tori was also on the Tony Nominating Committee. I got to work closely with this incredibly smart and caring woman over the years, so I'm especially happy to have her here today. Tori, welcome to the Broadway Gives Back podcast. Jan, it's lovely to be here. It's so good to talk with you. It's so good to talk with you, too. I think I saw you once during the last two years yeah. out in front of TKTS booth, like during one of the... At the, at the booth. And I think, were you at um, Liz's memorial service? Liz's that's right. funeral, maybe. Right, yeah. Liz McCann's. I saw you at Liz McCann's funeral. Yeah. yeah. It's so, been a, that's been one of the hardest things, right, for the last two years is we kind of haven't seen people in person. I mean, we're a pretty, we're a pretty in-person profession. We certainly are. I miss the hugs and I miss the energy. Hey, listen, before we start with our conversation about philanthropy and about about TDF, I want to do a a quick little get to know you for our listeners. Are you up for that? Sure. Why not? Okay. So I'm going to ask you a few questions about you and just answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. First question. First question. If you could be a member of any fictional family from a Broadway show or a movie or a TV show, which family would you choose to be a part of? Oh, it's a tie between Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music, because when I was little, I wanted to be in a big family, and I didn't have it. I had one sister. She's lovely, but I loved the idea of many brothers and sisters, and there was something in the story of Mary Poppins about families and parents and fathers that I always responded to. So one of those two. Oh, that's nice. What three words describe you? Theater lover, 
family member, and inquirer. Where is your happy place? Well, my physical happy place is in the Georgian Bay in Northern Ontario, which has been particularly challenging over the last three years because, of course, the border was closed. And so I managed three days last at the end of last summer when they opened the border. But that's my happiest place. And that's where I'm going to spend, I hope, a big chunk of time this summer. So that's really my my second happiest place, in all honesty, is the theater. Hmm. I was expecting that. What do you most give a damn about these days? There's so much to give a damn about. I think this week, I think a lot these days, I give a damn about the fact that the polarization in this country, the lack of the ability to have a conversation. And, you know, I'm as guilty as anyone else. I said, you know, like we all said in 2016, I said, okay, I'm going to try and really understand the people who don't think like me. And I haven't done a very good job of trying to do that. On the other hand, I mean, that that's what concerns me the most is I, I, have, I have a deep concern about what's going on in this country and about our inability to move forward in any collective way. And I don't know what to do about that, but in the kind of global sense, that's what I'm the most worried about. And that's what makes me the crankiest. Well, what are you most grateful for these days? Vaccines, science, and people's... People's bravery as they work to come back from what I think has been significantly more traumatic than we want to cop to, right? I think I think we're all wounded in ways that we're not ta- we're kind of I'm not even sure we know what the point is of talking about it. But so I'm I'm grateful for the science. I'm grateful for vaccines, and I'm grateful for the way that people are rising above whatever it is that frightens them to try and get on with it because we're not going to fix any of those other things if we don't get on with it. Yeah, the trauma has been, for some people, so traumatic and for others in a more subtle way, but there's still trauma. We've all suffered some kind of trauma, right? Yeah, there are people who, I mean, there are plenty of folks, and I would probably number myself as one, you know, I mean, there was a lot that was hard that I had a moment early on when I realized that the way that I the place that I go when I need sustenance or I need energy is the theater. And so at a time when I most needed that, I wasn't going to be able to have it. Mm. And I realized that was really hard. So there was a lot that was hard. But, you know, I think it was, I, I think for people, I don't know what the age point is, but there's some point where you're less formed. You're under 30, maybe you're under 35. I think for people who are in formation, of one sort or another to have this happen and have their life completely upended was probably harder than for those of us who, you know, yes, we, a lot of us were worried about our jobs and our livelihoods and the livelihoods of the people who work with us. And there was, I mean, it was heavy, heavy lifting, doing stuff you'd never done before, but we were formed. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think those people in particular, it's been more traumatic. And I just think Everybody's raw, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you saw it, you know, we're talking only a week after the subway, the subway shooting in Brooklyn last week. And we don't have a lot of reserves at the moment. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what we're seeing more than anything is people, people fly off the handle at just the slightest thing. And I think that's about the last two years more yeah. than anything else. Yeah, I agree with you. So you mentioned being formed. Um, I want to go back to that idea. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your journey 
from being, you know, a young, unformed person to being in one of the top positions in the theater world? What formed you and, and what were some of the milestones? The thing that's the case, which is a little bit boring, I guess, is that I can't remember a time when I wasn't involved in the theater. I mean, I started taking dance class and theater class and creative dramatics when I was five years old. And mm -hmm. so I've been, I've been, and I've been hanging around theaters since I was like 11 or 12. I grew up, in, I, I lived in Washington, D.C. until I was 16. Uh, my father was a journalist and I, I lived there until I was 16. So, you know, my parents took me to the theater. I took classes very early on at a place called the Washington Theater Club, which did new plays. So I was ushering when I was like 12 or 13. Hmm. And I mean, I went to school the whole time and I don't think, I don't think, I found, I found some letters, I was cleaning stuff out and I, I used to, this is kind of embarrassing, but I guess twice a year I, at the end, New Year's and on my birthday, which happened to be about six months apart, I used to write letters to myself, this, you know, kind of state of the union address for myself. Oh, that's nice. And when I was 11 or 12, I wrote that. I was still trying to figure out if I wanted to be an actress or I wanted to just be a really good mother. It was clear that at the time I didn't think you could do both, uh -huh. right? It was one or the other. Maybe it was I didn't think mothers could have careers. I don't know. But so I was thinking about being in the theater early on. I think the five, six months later I said I've decided I'll be a mother. That would be easier. Something. So I guess I'd figured it out. And then when I was 16, we moved to Minneapolis and I continued going to my regular school in the morning, but I went to the Children's Theater Company in Minneapolis at that point. I had a school. And so it was a performing arts school. And I went to, to theater school in the afternoon. I thought I was going to go straight to work in the theater. I auditioned for, I didn't think I would go to college. I auditioned for a couple of um, conservatories. I didn't get in because I wasn't good enough. And I did get into college. And I finally decided I would, okay, go to college for a year and see how that was. But I was pretty sure I was going to go right back to work in the theater and you know I, I went to college I was lucky I went to Yale and I was an undergrad there but there was the drama school so there was a lot of theater and I did a lot of extracurricular theater so it just it's just been kind of this natural progression I it, they're never you know I, I probably one summer I think the summer between my junior and senior year in college I had a moment of well maybe I'll be a lawyer <laughs> and I don't know my mother must have invited more young lawyers to the house that summer so that I would figure out it was interesting. That just didn't take. And, I, and friends, my parents were friends with Don Schoenbaum, who at the time was the managing director at the Guthrie. And I think he said to them, it's okay. It's really okay. She can have a career in the theater. It'll all be fine. Mm. So that's what I did, right? And so I, I just went to work. So when you when you were in college, though, you were at Yale, Yale Drama School had a lot of famous alums. Were any of them there when you were there? Oh, I was I was an undergrad in the famous seventies when they were when they were all there. So yes, I saw I saw, you know, Meryl Streep was I mean, that was that was Chris Durang, that was Meryl Streep, that was I mean, that was look, people have come out of the drum school for decades mm -hmm. equipped to make a career in the theater, but it was a pretty high visibility time. I don't think at the time it felt that way. I mean it was just I always just was working. I mean, it's what I did. Mm -hmm. And actually, my very first job was for a service organization that doesn't exist anymore that worked with emerging theaters and did technical assistance. So I got to see theaters all over, learn about theaters all over the country. And it was the 70s when the nonprofit theater movement was exploding. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I went to work and I worked. I actually went back to New Haven for a couple of years because my 
partner now, still husband, was in the drama school. And I ran the box office there because that was a job I could get. And then I came, and that was actually, I mean, I've been very lucky, right? I started in the box office where you learn about the audience. And that's the most important, I mean, that seemed, I mean that's, a, that's a circle that keeps coming back in my life. But you learn about the people who go to the theater as much as the people who make mm. it. And then I came to New York and I went to work at Manhattan Theater Club at that point. And at that point, MTC was a small theater on the Upper East Side, but all new plays. And so I got to, that, that, that's where I started learning about new plays and voices and how you produce new plays. And I just stuck with it. You're a perfect you know, case study of somebody who can make a life in the theater, not necessarily on stage. Absolutely. And when I, when I was growing up, I wish I knew that there would be professional development in a way that I could have a life in the arts and not have to be talented to be you know, in front of the camera or on stage. But I didn't realize that growing up. And I was lucky. I think, I, I think that happened when I was at the Children's Theater in Minneapolis because it was a whole company. Right. And so I, I thought I wanted to be a stage manager. And that's what I did in college. I stage managed. And that's what I was going that's what I was going to go do. And then someone told me that to be a successful stage manager, what you wanted to do was get involved stage managing a show that had a really long run. Right. Mm -hmm. Because then you did all the work and then you just settled in. And I hated that part. Mm. I liked the rehearsal part. I liked the putting it together part. And I said, wait a minute. I mean, if I do this right, then and it was like, I didn't want to do that. And so I thought, okay, I better do something else. And it was interesting. I looked at the management side of it. And it seemed to me at the time that women did marketing and fundraising and men did finance and contracts. And so I decided that was probably where the power was. And so that's what I did. Mm. I didn't want to, um, that's when I went into the business side of things. I started in the business, box office and then the business office because I didn't, I eat that, that was the kind of pigeonhole I think at the time that women got put into it was more kind of marketing and development because, you know, women couldn't do budgets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what I did. I like this idea. Yeah, I didn't know this about you, but that you were box office first and this whole idea of knowing the theater goers. I mean, and that is the theme of your career. You know, you right. make your life in trying to fulfill this mission of, of, you know, making theater more accessible to people and, and fulfilling, you know, the needs of the theater goers. So I really want to talk about that. Um, one of the programs for accessibility that you've helped create is this sensory-friendly performances um, to Broadway shows. And I just want to speak on a very personal level um, as you know, I have a child who, um, she's not actually on the spectrum of autism, but she has a lot of neurological issues. And um, theater has been so important to our family, but we were never able to take her. So I, I think you and David were there the first time I did take her to one of the sensory-friendly um, performances. And uh, her name's Lena. And while she did not really enjoy the show, um, there were two things that I remember very distinctly. One was that she was kind of yelling and making noise. And it was the first time I didn't have to feel like I needed to quiet her or that I was embarrassed in any way for her behavior. But more importantly, my other two daughters who love theater as much as I do, we were able to go to theater as a family for the first time. And it was such an indelible memory that will be etched in our minds forever. And yes, we laugh a little bit about how Lena reacted, but the fact that we could all be there. And at one point during the show, it was a Disney show, I think it was Lion King. 
we all looked at each other and we all had tears in our eyes because it was just so meaningful to be there together as a family. And I wondered if you could comment a little bit about the accessibility performances. Well, that's the, uh, I mean, that's the point. And the, the story makes me, <laughs> the and I remember the recollection of it makes me a little teary. But that when, we, when we first started talking about doing the program, one of the things a nonprofit has to do is make sure that what it does is on mission. Uh, your mission is your North Star. And our mission is building audiences. And I remember at the time, the conversation that I had with Lisa Carling, who runs the accessibility program, was the kids on the spectrum are unlikely to become independent theater goers, which has not proved completely true, but that's what we thought. But what we realized, of course, is that one of the number one predictors of why people go to the theater as an adult is that they go as a child, and that families with kids with special needs don't have the opportunity to have the same kind of experiences that families without kids with special needs have. And so by doing this program, not only are we providing access to theater for kids on the spectrum and kids with other neurological issues, we were providing access to the whole family. And we were providing an opportunity for a family to do something together. We, are, we, we like to say we're creating events that live long beyond the event that the afternoon in the theater and probably longer than they do for a lot of folks because it is such a special thing it is such a special opportunity and so your story is you know the essence is in a nutshell exactly why we do it and i'm glad that that happened that way for you well and thank you for making that happen quick aside the first time i took my kids to disneyland i didn't realize that they had these accommodations for people with special needs so we slept through Disneyland, through waited in every line. It was just, I mean, I don't think I've ever been so exhausted my whole life. And then as we're leaving the park, I see the sign where special needs, you know, blah, blah, blah. We could have had this whole VIP thing where you didn't have to stand in line, but I didn't know. You didn't know. That's too, yeah. Now they actually, I've heard that now they ask too many people, the world being what it is, people got hip to that and people would yeah. say they had kids with special needs and they didn't. Right. And so now they're like, but no, I, I do think like TDF, the whole idea of creating this environment where people are welcome to the theater, that is what you guys just excel at. And I remember in my old job at the Broadway League, we used to look at what are the barriers of entry um, for people. Because a lot of people say they want to go to the mm -hmm. theater, but then they don't go. And you guys take it to the next level where you say, okay, mm -hmm. here's mm -hmm. a barrier and here's what we're going to do to like, help people over that hurdle to get them to come to the theater. So what are, what are some of the barriers of mm -hmm. entry and mm -hmm. what have you done to help uh, those people? I think there's a variety of things. And, and it's interesting how our thinking about those barriers has evolved in the time that I've been here. Because the first barrier that TDF took on was the financial barrier. It was pretty right. straightforward. It was a series of programs that were designed to make theater affordable because even, you know, even when we started 50 years ago, if a full price ticket was $10, there, you know, at that point people made $180 a week, right? So it was still expensive. Mm -hmm. And so the the first programs were both the subsidy slash membership, the membership program, and then the booth, TKTS. And so, and, and that continues to be a focus for us, right? We continue to be laser focused on making sure that there's, that there are affordable tickets for people who need affordable tickets. But beyond, and, and then the accessibility program was all, as I've said, was about providing, whether it's captioning, interpreting, whatever, so people can access. But those were folks who already knew they wanted to go to the theater. They just needed help getting there. 
The, mm-hmm. the harder barriers are the people who think, oh, yeah, oh, maybe, right? Oh, that looks good. No, I'm not, right? And that's, I think, a combination of, in some instances, they don't know how to find out about it. We have the largest consolidated listing of performing arts events in the city of New York. Without regard to Broadway, off-Broadway, nonprofit, commercial, if it's on a stage and somebody's performing it, we list it. Um, education programs. We work with, in the before times, we were up to working with about 10,000 New York City public high school students with classroom work centered on a going to the theater, a live performance. That we're down about 6,500 and then we only were able, we did about 2,300. We'll do about 23, about 2,300 students will attend in person this year. The other programs have been in the classroom, but virtual, uh, virtual performances. But that's a, that program is really important because that's teaching New York City public high school students that they can go to the theater, that it's there for them, that they belong there, that even, you know, there's this, this perception that people who don't go to the theater have, that it is elitist, mm-hmm. that it is for people who've been to college, that you have to be rich, right? That it that it's a, it's a thing that doesn't belong to you. And so what we're doing in the education programs and in our community engagement programs is we're saying to people, this is yours. You have to do it not in, it's not outreach. I hate that, you know, outreach is a kind of patriarchal, I have something, you need it. No, this is engagement. This is saying, here, this is this thing over here. You might like it. Let's make it easier for you to try it. You know, there's a lot of conversation now, finally. You know, there's what there's the reckoning that happened during the pandemic that Broadway is contending with. Broadway, I think, has done a pretty good job. Broadway is working on diversifying the work on stage. Mm-hmm. The audience piece has a long way to go. We bring New York City high school kids to the theater. Sometimes we buy out a whole house, but often they're part of a house or we have a mentoring program that when you watch your scene started where small groups of like eight kids go to the theater with a mentor six times a year, mm-hmm. invariably after the first outing, part of the conversation with the mentor is why was everybody, unless they happen to go to a culturally specific show with a really diverse audience, part of the conversation is, well, everybody there was white. Mm-hmm. I felt really odd, right? I felt like people were looking at me. And it's like, you just have to say, that's their part, that's not, right? And it's a, it's actually something I want to do some work on from a research point of view is how do we help audiences, white audiences, understand some of their own implicit biases about who they expect to be in the theater and who they don't expect to be in the theater. That's something I think we have to work on. But so it's a whole host of things. So the barriers are financial, the barriers are informational. I mean, we're doing right now... New York State has a tax credit program where there are tax credits available to Broadway productions, which flow back to the investors. And in order to qualify for the program, they have to do two, th- productions have to do two things. One is, a, one is a job training piece, and the other is they have to make tickets available to people who qualify at 20 and $40. And if they're a thousand seat house, they have to make a thousand tickets available every six months. And we're the ticketing partner on that program. Mm -hmm. And it's been a real opportunity to help the shows understand how people's ability to go to the theater is linked to like their life. In other words, 
you know, you know, Saturdays, Friday, Saturday, Sunday sell better than Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Mm -hmm. So when the shows are making $20, $40 tickets available, they would prefer to make tickets available on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, because those aren't the nights that are as likely to be sold out. But we have been able to demonstrate people who work like regular jobs, mm -hmm. not white collar office jobs that start at 9.30. They don't come to the theater on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night. For the program to be a success, they have to come on the weekend, right? So there's a whole host of things that I think that one can identify that are ways that make theater that happens midtown. I mean, there's theater all over the city. And one of the big challenges also is to make people is to make sure that people know and respect more than we do the work that goes on all over the city. But Broadway belongs to everybody. And if you're a New Yorker, it's something you should do. And like people who grew up in New York, who grew up in the outer boroughs, I mean, my kids grew up in Brooklyn. They came into Manhattan a lot, but they call Manhattan the city, right? Mm. So, I mean, no matter kind of what background you have in terms of how often you get brought into Manhattan, it's a big deal to go, you know, when you're little, to leave Brooklyn or Queens or the Bronx, whatever, and go into the city. And that's part of what we're trying to make sure that students understand is this is theirs. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Let's go. I want to go back to one thing because we've talked about this a lot, and I just want to make sure that listeners understand this too. We come from the school of thought that theater is, is good for you, it's good for your soul, it's good for your. Um, your value system. You know, a lot of people cite different research studies, but talk about why you want people to come to the theater. Yes, it's for enjoyment, and yes, it's for for the performance, but it's also... I fundamentally believe it's deeper in that. Although, I think one of the challenges is to not make it medicinal, mm -hmm. right? Is <laughs> to not yeah. make it like go to the theater because, right? The, the first thing is it's storytelling, and we've been telling stories as... I mean, we've been telling stories for thousands of years, mm -hmm. and it is storytelling. But beyond that, there is something about watching a live performance with other people. There's research studies. People begin to breathe after a half hour in the theater. People's heart rate tends to be more, right? And there, if you go to the theater, there are those moments. And this is what made me cry, other than just being in a theater. When I was done the first time crying because I was sitting in a theater. The second time I cried, it was because I realized I was with a thousand other people. We were all watching two people in a moment on stage and every person was riveted. Mm -hmm. And it's the sense of the collective and the sense that, and this comes back to that issue of divide, right? At that moment, regardless of what 
it may be triggering internally. We're all having the same experience. We're all seeing the same story. The second thing that I'm thinking a lot about these days, you read a lot about one of the traumatic things. We're not meant to be stressed all the time. And when you're stressed all the time, right, your body actually, it's cortisol over and over and over. And we're getting, we're getting jabs way more than we were ever meant to. And I think one of the things that's happening now when you go to the theater is if you make a decision to go, you've made a calculation that you think it's safe, you stand in line, everybody shows their paperwork, you sit down, you're in a mask, you look at the people next to you, you decide it's okay, and then you start to watch the story. Mm -hmm. And for an hour, you don't have any of those inputs that might suggest to you you should be frightened. So we can talk about virtual performance and how you can watch online, but when you're sitting at home watching something online, I don't know about you, but it's here. I'm aware of, right? So then I, oh, 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 they did that, right? So mm -hmm. there, there's, there's no respite from the outside noise. And going to the theater provides a certain kind of respite from the outside noise that I think is way, is significantly more important than it was three years ago. And and I don't, you, you can't message that in a marketing campaign about how do you go back to the theater? And that's one of the challenges right. we have right now. But right. I think it's true. Yeah. I mean, for me, theater has always been about the connectivity and the energy in the room and mm -hmm. that connectedness. And you're right. That feeling is, it transcends political, you know, points of view and, and, and everything else. I was reading a book recently and it was talking about how sadness, the emotion of being sad is something that actually connects people. Mm -hmm. um, and it's actually a really positive emotion because it does provide mm -hmm. compassion and empathy. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in a similar way, the theatrical experience is, is like that too, where you're in this room, there's this stranger sitting in the dark, sharing a story, exchanging energy, and feeling all the feels, you know, sort of at the same time. And um, no, it's that moment when you're sitting in the theater and you realize that everybody's sniffling <laughs> yeah. because something on stage yeah. has touched a whole host of people yep. for whatever reason. Yeah. I mean, art touches people, right? Just the fact yeah. of seeing brilliant art and sometimes separate from the story. Yeah. And I think that people. If you're exposed to a variety of arts, you figure out which one is the one that for you. I'm sure there are people mm -hmm. who feel exactly the same way about standing in front of a painting that you and I feel about right. sitting in the theater. Right. And then there's the people who feel that way at a baseball game or a football game. Right. And I like baseball too, but it's a different thing. It's a different thing. <laughs> it's different. So anyway, so just getting back though to what you were saying, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it was just like the emotional part really took over for me. <laughs> so making theater more accessible, I and I totally understand that the biggest barrier is financial. You guys have programs to to conquer that. Accessibility, I see that. Providing information and engaging with schools and engaging with people. But you also have done a lot of research, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, in your research, you've tried to strengthen the relationships between the theaters and the audiences and even the people who make the work, right? The playwrights and the, yeah. and the composers and lyricists. Um, you know, that seems like, um, I mean, how do you do that? Like, w what is an example of that? The most recent example was a study we did called Triple Play, a baseball term, actually. <laughs> triple Play, where I'm a huge believer in partnerships, and I think you do better work working with other organizations. A, it's more effective, it's more economical, but 
it's also just better work because mm -hmm. it's different, more minds, if you will. Here, here. And so we worked with um, Theater Bay Area in San Francisco, colleague Brad Erickson, who ran Theater Bay Area at the time. And Brad and I actually were at a play, we were at a convening of new playmakers at Arena Stage in Washington. And it's a very quick story, but you may remember when Rocco Landisman, who had been at Two Champs and was running the National Endowment for the Arts, and there were a whole mm -hmm. bunch of league folks there and all these new play people there. And Diane Ragsdale interviewed Rocco in front of the crowd of nonprofit and commercial leaders. Among the things Rocco said at the time, perhaps his most controversial statement as the chair head of the National Endowment <laughs> for the Arts was the problem with theater in America was there were too many theaters, which mm -hmm. was not taken so well by the nonprofit <laughs> sector. And Brad and I looked at each other and said, no, the problem is there's not enough audience, right? And service organizations, part of our job is to get more audience. And then we started talking about, over the course of that weekend, artists kept talking about how they never got to talk to the audience. And we thought about, well, what if you actually put people in conversation directly with each other? And so that turned into a three-year research study funded by the NEA and Doris Duke and some private foundation and some private funders where we looked at what what were the kinds of things that could be done that would help get people go to help build people's appetite to go to plays in particular more. We did qualitative research and we did quantitative research and we ended up actually the single ticket study was the largest study of single ticket buyers that had ever been done. It was like 10,000 theaters. We worked with service organizations all over the country to get people into the database. And we learned a bunch of things. And, and what it does is it, give, it, it reveals a series of tools that people can take and use if they want. And one of the number one lessons coming out of all of this work was what people want to know before they decide to go to the theaters, they want to know what the story is. Mm -hmm. They don't need to know all of the plot in all of its detail, but they want to know what it's about. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you have that and you take that finding and then you lay it against almost all the marketing that we do for theater, mm -hmm. we're not giving them what they want. They don't want to know who the direct, what the director directed before. They don't want to know what, they don't care what the playwright wrote before. You know, yes, theater junkies like you and me, right? Real insight. We know that it means something that so-and-so is the director and what that means we should expect and what that means the experience might be like. But your average person who goes to the theater once or twice a year doesn't know what it means. What they want to know is, is it a comedy? Is it a drama? Is it about family? What's it about? Mm -hmm. Because why do they want to know that? They want to know who to bring. They want to make sure they're going to have a good time. They want to know it's something they're going to like. And so the way we keep this a secret, when we know that the number one re way that some plays sell tickets is by one person telling another person to go see the play, the first person who sees it had damn well better like it. Because if they like it, they're going to tell somebody mm -hmm, to go see it. Mm -hmm. And if they don't like it, you're dead in the water. And so, you know, that's the kind of work that I like to do is what are the tactical things that we can do that actually make it more likely that someone will buy a ticket to go to the theater and that when they go, they will have a good time, they will feel supported, and they will come back. Because if they don't have a good time, they're not going to come back. And one of the things that I think we're up against coming out of the pandemic is casual theater goers who didn't go very much. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones we're going to have a harder time getting back. Yeah. Because they've learned they don't, you know, they've survived without going. Mm -hmm. The cable is up to, I mean, so much that's streaming and available now, they've upped their game. 
the work is better, the quality is better. And so that casual person, I, that's the person I don't know how quickly we're going to get them to come back. Yeah, I, I get that. Can you tell I'm worried about this? I can Sorry. tell. I can tell. We can talk about this. You know, I, I mean, it was a problem back when I was doing marketing at the Broadway yeah. League, I remember. So yeah. speaking of which, I want to talk about the TKTS booth because you were mm -hmm. there for its complete reinvention. Um, <laughs> and I, um, I, I want to ask a question personally, but I think I'm asking mm -hmm. on behalf of many people. Why is there still a statue of Father Duffy in the middle of Duffy Square? Because it's named Duffy Square. I mean, it's a park, right? I mean, that's the, it is Father Duffy Square. No, no, couldn't it, but couldn't that have been like moved down to the southern end of the square? It's just right there in front of the red steps. I just wanted it to- It was a very <laughs> New York City project. Uh -huh. There was the Broadway community. Mm -hmm. There was the Times Square Alliance, the business community. Mm -hmm. There were a coalition of folks who care very deeply about Father Duffy and his representation, most of whom were affiliated with various arms of the Catholic Church, and we had to all come together and compromise. And I, <laughs> I actually was a TD. I was not at TDF when the design competition guidelines were developed. Mm -hmm. But part of those guidelines was that statue wasn't moving. Okay. The red steps. Well, and and I have to say, it wasn't just us. It was also, it was the Times Square Alliance, and it was Tim Tompkins who yeah. was running the alliance yeah. and had a real vision you know what was important for me personally was that there'd been all of times square had come back and we hadn't yet done anything that's kind of was representative of the the role that broadway had played in that comeback mm -hmm. right the recovery of times square and you know i remember i was floored that the two designers of the red steps didn't realize that that kind of arena actually was how the Greeks had theaters, right? Exactly. I, and when right. I met them, I said, so you were thinking of Greek amphitheaters. They said, no, we just like steps. <laughs> but it worked, and the red worked. And so I thought it was really important that we had some theater gift. Tim was the one who understood open space in the middle of Times Square and understood as much as a lot of people have had trouble with it. But, you know, the plazas and having some place where people can sit and walk and be without traffic was something he envisioned and he saw the steps. He understood that steps could be catalytic for the city understanding mm -hmm. from a planning point of view how the rest of it would work. So uh, I, I, it is a project that nearly killed us, but the end result is something I'm, I, I'm, I'm very proud of and I think it is... I think it has become a real gathering place that, you know, there's a lot of people sit on the steps still who don't know you can go get off the steps and go buy a discount ticket. Right, right. But it has become just the most iconic place in New York City. And yay, Tim Tompkins. We love Tim. Yeah. I miss Tim. Um, Tim, if you're listening, we love you. Two more things for you. Two more questions. Yeah. The first is the Tony Awards are coming and you were on the Tony nomination committee for many years. Any thoughts about the Tonys this year? I mean, we did have the Tonys last year, but it was sort of a pandemic Tonys. So many people are so excited about the Tonys this year coming back and all these shows opening. Any Tony thoughts, predictions? Last week, I, I went to the Olivier's in London because Julian Bird, who runs the Society of London Theatres, is a friend and he is moving on from Salt. Mm. So it was the last Olivier's and TDF and Salt have a relationship because they have the only other TKTS booth. And they didn't have a even a 
pared down Olivier's last year. But there was something pretty wonderful about everybody being back in the room together again mm. and the community being together. I think that's the that's the big message for this year. And I think the challenge will be to celebrate all the work, not just the winners. Right. Because the cha- the the thing to celebrate, damn it, is that we're there. Exactly. Because it is really hard making theater right now. Mm-hmm. And I am in awe of the people who are dealing with it because there are so many pieces to put together. So the celebration for the Tonys is the body of work, not who wins. Obviously, you want to celebrate the nominees and beyond that, the people who win. But just getting a curtain up and a run in place is an accomplishment this year that should be celebrated. Yeah, I love that. Many of the people who listen to this podcast, they are um, they're Broadway fans, but they're also people who are you know, interested in philanthropy and being change makers in the world today. And I wondered if you could give some advice to our listeners about being a change maker in today's world. The single largest piece of advice is I think that people often think that they can't make change unless they can make a big gift or they can play a big part, right? No, change gets made every day. And so if you have the resources to support efforts that need financial support, do it. But even if you don't have the resources to make huge financial contributions, small financial contributions are really important. I mean, we got a lot of five and $10 checks when we were fighting to stay alive in the spring of 2020. And those five and $10 checks I had, there was a woman who wrote me and said, after my first kind of appeal and said, I can't make a contribution yet. I'm a retired teacher and I don't understand yet the impact on my retirement savings. But once I do, I'll be back to you. Three months later, we got a letter from her with a $40 check saying, I've gotten a better grip on my finances. Mm -hmm. I can give you $40 now and I'm probably going to be able to do it again in the fall. That was really important. Mm -hmm. And so you can support the people making a change in whatever way you're capable of doing it. The thing to do is not be quiet. You've been an incredible change maker in the world of theater. You spearhead many things that that are lasting changes. I just wonder what changes would you like to see in the theater community going forward? What's the most important thing you'd like to see happen? I want the commitments that we've made in the last two years to greater equity to be sustainable. I want us all, all of us who have been in positions of power and benefited from racist systems, I want us to continue to be held to and I want the industry to continue to do its piece. I want the work to continue. I would like to see us stand on each other's shoulders a little bit more. I'd like to hope that we can continue. You know, there have been moments of real partnership, and I hope that continues. You know, I hope, I mean, you know the business. So much of the time it's I need to sell more tickets than you sell because I need my, no, a rising tide is good for all ships. And that's what we're learning right now. And I don't want us to lose sight of that because this pandemic will end. Something else will happen. You and I have lived through several major cataclysmic world events that have impacted the theater. And we need to keep helping each other. And maybe that's a little Pollyanna-ish, but I think it's really important. And I think I would hope that we would open our doors more to more people, to get them in. 
because, you know, right now in New York, we're waiting for international tourists to come back. And until they come back, we're reliant on ourselves. We need to step up to the plate. We need to keep asking people to come. We need to get them in any way we can. And we need to believe that there are better days ahead because there are. And right now, you know, we're getting up in the morning and we're going to work and we're going to the theater and that's more than we were doing a year ago. And that's, you know, I think that's, I think that's how we have to look at it. Well, that's a perfect way to end this podcast. And I think there will be better days ahead and there will be because of people like you working in the theater. So thank you so much, Tori. Like you, thank you as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Broadway Gives Back podcast. Broadway Gives Back is part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Special thanks to my producing partner, writer, editor, and friend, Jim Lochner. And thank you to everyone at BPN, including Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, and Kimberly Garris. I'd also like to thank Julian Hills from the Bulldog Agency and Eric Becker from Broderick Street Music. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also follow Broadway Gives Back on Facebook and Instagram at Broadway Gives Back Podcast and on Twitter at Broadway Gives. To learn more, visit bpn.fm slash Broadway Gives Back. Thanks so much. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.